Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwar Deterrence Center. Our host is Dr. Adam Lauther, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The Anwar Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent and its ongoing modernization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another exciting episode of NucleCast. Of course, as always, I'm your host, Adam Lowther, and today we have with us a, tr- a truly great guest. Of course, I'm talking about Mr. Franklin C. Miller, or as we in the nuclear community know him as, one of the gray beards of the nuclear world. Of course, Frank uh, spent, what, three or four decades now probably four decades, uh, serving as a Pentagon official, a White House official, and most recently, he was a member of the Strategic Posture Commission, which is, of course, the reason we asked him to come on NucleCast. Frank, thanks for joining us on the show. Adam, it's a pleasure to be back. So the Strategic Posture Commission recently completed its report And you had a number, and for those that don't know, it was a bipartisan commission. And to many of our surprise, the results were more, there was more advocacy for modernization, for for the sort of the types of programs that we thought would not be possible given the composition of the commission. So let me start by asking if you could tell the listeners what was the impetus behind the commission? And then could you maybe give us a synopsis of the commission's findings? Sure. Um, so the, the, the impetus, I think, was that the last Strategic Posture Commission was, was held in 2008-2009. And um, folks on the Hill, senior folks on the Hill in both houses had, had recognized that the world has changed dramatically since, since that time, uh, you know, 14, 13, 14 years ago. And they wanted a new look at the world. And so they decided to create this uh, Congressional Commission. Um, as you said, there were 12 members nominated by by senators and and members of the house um six six nominally republicans six nominally democrats and the commission began its work in um 2022 and and uh slogged our way through 2022 and into 2023 and uh and as you say just issued our final report uh last month so um it was i think it 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 did surprise a lot of people. Uh, the report is very, very robust in any number of areas. Uh, it is very wide in, in, in the subject matter it addresses, but it is um, threat-based. We spent a lot of time with the intelligence community. Um, it is bipartisan, and it is, in fact, a consensus report. All of the commissioners sign up to every hard-fought word in the document. Yeah, that's that was one of the things that I think struck so many people is just the fact that you could get these 12 very different perspectives 
to agree on what were some, you know, pretty robust findings. Could you maybe go into detail more on what those specific findings were? Sure. Well, we'll 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 we'll, we'll go to the top of the waves because there were 131 findings and 81 recommendations. So none of us have through all that. I think the first and, and most important thing is is the consensus view that um, we urgently need to recognize that we are not postured to face the threats of the emerging uh, environment. And by that, we mean the fact that there are we are about to be in an era, if we're not actually there already, where there are two nuclear peer potential adversaries, and we are not well uh, positioned to deal with those. We're not well positioned to deal with those from a policy sense um, and from a programmatic sense and uh, across the board from from our nuclear forces to our uh, conventional capabilities to our industrial base um, to our missile defenses. We are, we are not postured well to do that. So the commission advocated change in policy, and we can go through that in our conversation, and it, it advocated um, getting ready to, to make changes to existing programs, and for the out years, it makes changes or recommends changes to the uh, modernization program. We can go through all of those things, um, but I think it, it will be important to say up front because of some of the negative coverage we've got, it's not calling for a new arms race. It's not calling for uh, major uh, spending, new spending on nuclear forces uh, in, in the near in the near term. Um, and um, clearly because the Russians have been putting new forces in the field since the mid-2010s, and the Chinese have been putting new forces in the field for at least uh, five, five to seven years, and we haven't put any new forces in the field, we're still catching up. So, so it's clearly not an attempt to create an arms race because there are two people racing and it's Russia and China. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Let me ask you why in terms of this discussion in about two near peers. And as I've been thinking about it, this idea of the three body problem. And in reality, I've come to the conclusion that no, it's not really a three body problem. It's a two body problem. It's, it's two Asian dictators in Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping and potentially a third in Kim Jong-un. And they clearly understand they have one enemy and that's us. And, you know, the British are sort of our much smaller ally. And I wonder, is it not necessarily a new Cold War uh, in the same sort of vein, but it's it really is a two-body problem where we have to be able to simultaneously deter and potentially win a war against China, Russia, North Korea, and then even maybe Iran. And then it'll it'll largely be the United States and Great Britain. Am I looking at that wrong? Did y'all see it differently in the report? No, I think to begin with, one of the major changes that the report calls for is to recognize that we need to be able to deter simultaneously Russia and China, not that China is a lesser included 
uh, case anymore. And that's because the commission believes that it is possible that in a future contingency, um, the if there is aggression, um, it could be combined planned aggression or a war could start with aggression in one theater and um, the other potential enemy tries to take advantage of, of that. So bottom line, we need to shift to a basically a, a two-peer two deterrent construct, and that's going to require some changes. The report also makes very clear that uh, we believe that our allies are an extraordinary advantage for us in the world, and that while we are clearly vital to our allies' defense and liberty, our allies are vital to our own defense and liberty. And, and, and Senator Kyle is particularly eloquent on this point. And uh, a third factor is that we, we need to have our leaders um, in the executive branch and the legislative branch um, continue to make clear to the American people that this is the world we've now entered into, that we need to be able to, to prevent wars by two potential enemies who have nuclear arsenals roughly equivalent to our own and who are ruled by very aggressive um, dictators who are prepared to take risks, and we need them not to take those risks. Kim Jong-un was, was, was discussed certainly in our group. Um, in, in, in a way, Kim Jong-un and North Korea is, a, is in fact a lesser included case in the world of having to deter simultaneously uh, Moscow and Beijing. So let's take it in a few parts. So you said you had policy change recommendations. What would be the assessment of the policy changes that are required? Well, the, first of all, that that as a central plank of our foreign and defense policy, we need to talk about deterring Russia and China simultaneously. And we've kind of talked about deterring Russia. China was a lesser included case. Certainly, if you go all the way back to the to the New START treaty into 2010, um, the world was very different. Uh, Russia wasn't an, uh, an enemy and China wasn't really in the discussion. But today we worry about China and Russia uh, being uh, potentially working together against us and that we need to change our, our force structure and our thinking to incorporate that. And as you say, people talk about a two-body problem. We thought rather more straightforwardly that we need to deter Xi Jinping and we need to deter Vladimir Putin. We need to do so in the standard way the U.S. government has has implemented its nuclear policy for decades. That is, we need to hold at risk what the enemy leaders value themselves, um, the support structure that keeps them in place, the KGB, FSB, People's Armed Militia, Communist Party of China, etc. Um, key elements of their military forces and key elements of their war supporting industry. Um, that is to say, we rejected the notion that is uh, popping up in some pseudo-academic journals that we need to be targeting enemy populations, which is both immoral against the laws of armed conflict and which is potentially, well, it's foolish because those people can't decide whether to go to war or not. What you're trying to do is influence leaders 
who make the decisions to commit aggression or not. So those are kind of the policy changes. Um, there's also a major change after we've talked about this a little more, if you want, on missile defense that I do want to highlight for you. Well, you know, in the past, we, we the United States, have always said we would not have any homeland defenses against uh, Russia or China. The commission now believes that because Russia and China are both capable of carrying out limited what we call coercive attacks against our homeland, that, that we should, as a nation, build and deploy integrated air and missile defenses to protect the homeland against coercive uh, Russian or Chinese uh, attacks. And that's that also is a major recommendation for policy change. Yeah, it's uh, one of the things that I did like is this idea that we're going to now start include and discuss more frequently the idea of missile defenses. Whereas it's sort of been, you know, the the army and the or the air force and the navy did nuclear, and the the army sort of off to the side had this missile defense mission that we really didn't talk much about uh, in terms of its role and importance for nuclear. Whereas you very clearly state that that you can't think that way anymore. I, I wonder, did you have much in the way of discussions, and having just spent a year at um, working with Stratcom and just the conversations you have that there is this perhaps um, desire to view deterrence as, as an in-state in and of itself, as opposed to an effect you achieve. So for example, my premise would be that you have to plan for and develop and field the capabilities to fight and win a nuclear war. And by virtue of doing that, the outcome is that you deter your adversaries and never have to fight what you've planned for. As opposed to thinking in terms of we're all we want to do is deter. That's the desired end state. And that's what, because that's a very different mindset. And it creates a very different perspective in the mind of an adversary when you essentially a message them all we want to do is deter as opposed to we will fight you and we will defeat you. And so therefore I think the one is better at achieving deterrence than the other. Were those, did you have any sort of discussions or debates on those kinds of issues? What, what was sort of the nature and character of what you discussed and how that debate ebbed and flowed? Well, you know, uh, we did not get into that sort of philosophical approach. I mean, what you're describing, in essence, is, is, is a school of thought that talks about existential deterrence. You know, that, that I've got some nuclear weapons, they may or may not work, but you don't, you don't really know whether they work, and therefore, I have deterred you. And I think that if you look at, at our body of work, what we're saying is deterrence depends on capable forces which can make credible threats in response to aggression against us or our allies. And so our focus was on what kinds of capabilities do we need to make those threats credible now and in the future. And we did not, um, we deliberately did not try to say how many forces were required 
you know. Um, we did not deliver, we deliberately did not say when we talk about theater nuclear forces exactly what weapon system would meet the criteria we set out for a theater nuclear system. But we talked in general about having the capability to pose credible threats because it is the credible threat of military response that makes deterrence meaningful. You've got to back the policy up with forces that can do great harm if um, deterrence fails. It's that time in the show where we have to take a quick break. So I want to give you a question before the break to answer afterward. And so that question is, it's, was there a discussion, you know, one of the big topics that I and others, I'm sure you have been thinking about is this idea of conventional nuclear integration, CNI. Was that topic something you discussed and what, what was sort of the consensus? So we'll, we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Amla Deterrent Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're back and we're talking to Frank Miller about the Strategic Posture Commission report. Frank, I gave you a, a CNI question before the break. Was there any discussion of this topic? Well, I think, you know, let's let's kind of define our terms here. I mean, I, I know conventional nuclear integration is something that is, 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 is it's a buzzword, like integrated deterrence that, that's kicked around a great deal. Uh, in facing uh, potential aggression from Russia and China, we recognize that, that both uh, nations, militaries, have integrated um, gray area attacks, conventional attacks, nuclear attacks, space attacks, and cyber attacks. So when you, when you have to deter uh, uh, a Xi Jinping or a Vladimir Putin, you have to have the full suite of capabilities to say, that's not going to work, that's not going to work, that's not going to work. So in a sense, yes, um, we talked about the need to make sure that our conventional capabilities are improved, that if we can't fight and win at the conventional level, we'll have to rely more on our nuclear forces, which we don't really want to do. But those nuclear forces have to be beefed up as well. And we need to improve our capability in space, and we need to improve our capability in cyber, and we need to be able to defend the homeland against coercive attacks. So it, you know, without really talking about conventional nuclear integration, we're talking about integrating all of the elements of deterrence in the report. Yeah. One of the things that I've been given a lot of thought to lately after some of the work my colleagues at NSRI and elsewhere have done is this idea that particularly for the Russians and to some degree for the Chinese, that the United States has some superiority in conventional capabilities, air power, for example, uh, precision guided weapons. And I wonder if, you know, one of the things people have said, hey, is, hey, we'll offset 
our nuclear capabilities with really good conventionals. And that'll, you know, that'll do the trick. You can destroy the same targets. You don't need the nukes. We don't need, you know, low yield and, and tactical or theater nuclear weapons. We got all this other stuff. But for me, as I read the Russians in particular, that creates a nuclear spiral where the better our conventionals get, the more they rely on tactical or theater nuclear weapons. And that you're in effect having the exact opposite effect of what you would like to have. It, did any kind of topics along those lines come up? How did you sort of see Russian strategy? You mentioned gray zone warfare and this idea that they'll they'll attack in cyber and space. How how did this sort of the discussion of the conventional nuclear mix? How how'd that work out? Well, again, I mean, we we talk in the report about needing a whole government approach, uh, and by that we mean, you know, the capability to engage in deterrent actions and you know potentially uh, countering hostile actions day to day in in uh, politics and 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 in propaganda and and in influence operations and, and in all of that. But going straight through, we talk about the need to build up our capabilities and that those capabilities. Uh, need to be in a whole of government strategy. That is, you don't have you don't have this force here and that force there and that force there, and that they're not integrated in any way. Um, you mentioned low yield, and you would be you know interested. Uh, your your readers, listeners would be interested in knowing that when we talk about the need, and we talk about a need to build up U.S. theater nuclear capabilities, we talk about a survivable low yield system precisely to deter potential and use of low-yield systems. Now, again, we didn't give it a name. We didn't say, you know, whether it was going to be sea-launched, air-launched, or ground-launched, but we said it needed to be survivable, deployable, um, capable of remaining in theater uh, for extended periods of time, and and to have a low-yield capability. So, yes, I think we did talk about all of those things. Um, we didn't tell... You know, we didn't tell the Pentagon how they should employ these things, but but obviously, if you're in a war with an enemy who's integrated its own capabilities, uh, you need to be able to deter across the board. So we've we've talked about policy changes. What you sort you've mentioned integrated air and missile defenses. You've talked sort of a generally a theater capability. Were there any other major? capabilities or approaches that you decided on that you think are the listeners need to understand? I do. So, you know, first there's this charge that we're calling for, for, for billions, trillions uh, in, in nuclear systems. Uh, and so when you look at the report, the, there is a phased set of recommendations or a set of phased recommendations to be perfectly accurate. And what we're calling for in the near term is, is, is um, more priority and, and, and on long-range conventional strike, sort of our, our anti-A2AD systems. Um, and so there are systems that, that the, there is a system, for example, that the Army and Navy are jointly developing, but the deployment uh, uh, timeline on that is very, very slow, particularly when you contrast that with what the theater commanders are saying is a possible year when the war might begin in Asia. Um, we can't afford to 
put these things out in penny packets. So the commission calls for accelerating the deployment of long-range conventional strike. Um, the commission calls for enhancing, increasing, increasing the Air Force tanker fleet because we don't have enough tankers to support a major war in Asia, let alone, uh, you know, simultaneous conflict in in Europe and in Asia. And the Air Force program, whatever whatever they're going to do, just doesn't answer the the mail. I mean, another sixty odd tankers isn't going to make make a difference. You got to buy a lot more tankers, and and that's so that's that's the second thing we t- we talk about in the near term: tankers, long range conventional strike, um, going towards a integrated air and missile defense, uh, which would require developing it. That's 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 a priority, and then the last thing. And you know, to the degree anything is particularly expensive in the near term, it's to rebuild our critical defense infrastructure, both the defense industrial base as well as the nuclear weapons production complex. Because as you know, Adam, and I presume many of your listeners know, NNSA's production facilities are many of them date to the 1940s and 50s. So we are calling for an infusion of funds to increase the capability of, of for for the NNSA to produce nuclear weapons. But that's the near term funding. We're not calling for, for for major, you know, expenditures in the near term. We are saying that as as we approach 2026 and the expiration of the New START Treaty and into a, a world where we don't know what the future is going to be, that we may need to upload. We may need to take warheads out of the hedge and put them on, you know, maybe go back to Merving Minuteman um, or maybe taking uh, more, putting more warheads on Trident. Um, we talk about the fact that when New START expires, we would want to return to nuclear service the B-52s that were taken out of the nuclear role and the and the Trident tubes that were taken out of the nuclear role, and and that we're worried again. We're sort of talking near term now. We're talking twenty six to maybe thirty five. We worry about the transition because we're relying on keeping our older systems alive when the newer systems come in. But if there's a if there's going to be some sort of a hiccup whether it's on Sentinel or B-21 or Columbia, uh, and we hope there won't be, uh, we need to keep the older systems alive until the new ones uh, actually start coming into the field. So we're worried about, about, you know, maintaining an adequate capability during that transition period. Um, But again, that's, that's not a lot of money compared to, you know, acquiring new things. Now, what we do say as a commission is that, in the out years, that the the modernization program um, is necessary, but it's not sufficient. So we say we're going to need to buy more Columbia boats. That you know, a minimum of twelve is not the answer. It's going to have to be more than twelve. Um, that we need to buy more B twenty one bombers. That we need to buy more LRSOs. But those are out year funds. I mean, that's sort of twenty thirty five and beyond. So this is all part of a of a phased approach to making sure that the deterrent is capable of simultaneously preventing aggression in Asia and in Europe. 
One of the things that has sort of struck me is you mentioned the criticism on all of this new spending and we can't afford it. And, and I, I'm, I'm sort of baffled by the criticism because a, as we know the you know, the annual modernization costs are, are less than the money that Medicare and Medicaid lose annually to waste, fraud, and abuse. That's $80 billion a year. That's what they lose. If we just take the last, the, the first two years of COVID relief funding in the Biden administration and the, the fraud in that, those two years of pro, that program, that would pay for 30 years of nuclear modernization and operations. And so nobody's really talking about the fraud and abuse in these other programs and saying, we've got to stop this. We've got to fix this. But yet they have, they have the, this um, angst about nuclear modernization that it's not affordable. So I don't understand how, you know, trillion dollar fraud is okay and not a big deal, but 50 to 70 billion a year for nuclear modernization is unaffordable. I, I don't understand the well, logic. I'm, I'm not, I'm not an expert in, in fraud, waste and abuse. So I can't talk to those numbers, but what I can talk to with confidence is that in the 2018 nuclear posture review, the defense department said that the total combined cost of both operating the current deployment and modernizing the force into the 2040s was between six and 7% of the defense budget. We, you and I both know that the defense budget today is larger than it was in 2018. And so that six to 7% is going to, is going to have come down. Um, so again, we're talking about, you know, something in 6% or lower to prevent global nuclear war to prevent, you know, the unthinkable, and and that's easily affordable. And again, the critics, because they just throw a lot of mud, um, you know, say this is an arms race, say this is too expensive, but they don't they don't look at what we wrote, and they don't look at what the programs are. And the fact of the matter is, you know, Minuteman and and Trident Ohio class submarines. Uh, have been kept around an awful long time and they have to be replaced or get, or we get out of the deterrent business and we can't afford to do that. So we can't afford to modernize the force and we can't afford to make certain that our space-based capabilities are protected and that we have deterrent capabilities in space and same goes for cyber. Um, you know, we're dealing uh, with, with some, some pretty aggressive and nasty characters yeah, and the, the the charge that you're advocating a new arms race, I think it was, I don't remember whether it was uh, Admiral Richard or General Cotton, but I think it was one of the two said, you know, an arms race is much less expensive than a war. And so they would much rather have an arms race than a war. And, you know, I, 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 I know I agree. I, I think you probably do as well. But I, we're at the point in the show where I want to bring out my good friend, Bob, my genie. And if I rub my magic lamp and Bob pops out and he agrees to give you three wishes about the Strategic Posture Commission report. And you had over 80 recommendations. 
So, but you can only wish for three things. What would those top three things be? What can Bob do? Well, what Bob could do, first of all, is make sure that the report's recommendations are understood on a wide basis on the Hill and in the administration. Because uh, we believe that the, that the recommendations are sound, uh, and we do believe that, that given current events, I mean, given the crisis over the speakership, given the Hamas-Israel situation and the war of Ukraine, uh, the rollout of the report did not exactly get as, as much uh, understanding and publicity as, as I would have hoped. So one, one thing for Bob is, is to do that. Uh, a second thing that, that I would hope that if the report is, is widely disseminated is that people read it. And they, they, by reading that report, you can easily understand why so many of the criticisms that have been leveled at it are specious. You know, they're just, they're simply specious. And so that's, that's a second thing that, that would be useful. And the third thing is I would hope, I would hope that as the Biden administration uh, in, in its next, you know, 13 months and whoever is the administration, whether it's a Biden administration or a Republican administration uh, beginning um, in 2025, that, that they take things in the report to heart and they implement them. You know, one of the things that you and I both know is that while it's really difficult sometimes to write policy and get policy agreed upon, signing it out without implementing it doesn't do a doggone thing. I mean, what you need to do is implement things. Implementation is the hardest thing that there is in government. And so this report will be useless if people don't pick up on recommendations and implement them. And, and that, that would be my third wish, that the recommendations in the report become implementable. Yeah. So as we sort of wrap up the show and you have a sort of a takeaway point for the listeners, what would that takeaway be? That the world has changed that it is more dangerous, that we need to think about deterring two nuclear peers differently than we have looked at the world since the end of the Cold War, where we sort of had one principal enemy, um, that we need to adapt our thinking and our force structure to a wide range of potential aggression, starting in the gray area, running up through conventional and space and cyber all the way up to nuclear and that we need to prevent all of those, uh, that this is essential to our security and that our allies are essential to our security. All right, Frank Miller, thanks for joining us on Nuclecast. My pleasure. Thank you, Adam. Best to you and your gang. Take care now. Thanks. And thanks to you, the listeners, and we'll see you on the next episode. This has been a production of the Anwa Deterrence Center, a 501c3 that seeks to educate key decision makers, stakeholders, and the public to ensure a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent. Our executive producer is Kimberly Channington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Frumpall. 
Help us grow our followers by sharing it and follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at NucleCast.